We start with the controversial report issued this week from the Vancouver Police Department on the amount of money that's being spent on social services in the city. $5 billion every year, $14 million a day. You talk about controversy on this one, too. Big pushback on this report. There are people saying that it was misleading. Have a listen to this. This is Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer yesterday fighting back against the critics of this report. Have a listen. In fact, we're not misleading the public. We're actually telling the public the truth. Well, I don't think the data is so imprecise as you're trying to position it. I think there's actually a lot of accuracy in the data. And this is the first kick at the can to try and put some sort of financial numbers to it. They're not perfect. Nobody's saying that. Okay, are we getting value for money for all the money that's being spent on these problems in the downtown east side? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Howard Chow, Deputy Chief of the Vancouver Police Department. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Howard, thank you for coming on today. Morning, Mike. Thank you. Okay, first of all, what what would you say are the sort of headline takeaways that you want the public to know from this report? Well, I think when you said it's a controversial report, we expected it. I think that uh, we expected we would get criticism. We expected that there would be some uncomfortable conversations. But if we think that everything's okay and the services that are being provided and the housing situation and the downtown east side and other neighborhoods like Chinatown and Yale Town and Granville Entertainment District are okay and everything's working well, then ignore the report and let it sit on shelves like so many others before it. But if we want to, like, is it so wrong to say, hey, let's take a look at things. Maybe we can do it better. And I think that's where the disconnect is. But we expected that this would be. And it's it's not defending because that's exactly what we want is conversation on this. And I think we've got a we've got a lot of that over this last few days. Right. And, you know, some of the the criticisms that have been directed at this report over the last 48 hours that. You know, the report talks about $5 billion in social spending in the city, which people are just going, are you kidding me? Five billion bucks a year. And I guess there was a perception that most of that money was flowing into the downtown east side in this failed model down there. And then you find out that, well, hang on, $2 billion of that is for Canada pension plan payments to seniors in in Vancouver. Has all this stuff that doesn't really have to do with the downtown east side. So isn't that misleading, though? No, I think it's misleading in that probably that $5 billion is a very underestimate of what that number is. You've got to bear yeah. in mind, this is two, three-year-old da- data now. And when we looked at other cities, we saw that that number grew quite significantly in these other cities um, with that same data set. So, and also, it's re- reflecting only the data that they could capture. So if they weren't able to, to source it, then it doesn't go on the tally sheet. So when you talk yeah. about things like old age pension, EI, welfare, uh, you got to remember it's not all about the downtown east side. We're talking about the social safety net. So doesn't yeah. the 80-year-old who's out collecting bottles who can't make ends meet or the single mom living in Caresdale who's, who's also having a difficult time and you know the son, the son uh, gets addicted to drugs? Or what about the father that lost his job that lives in uh, Marple, um, and now the family's homeless. Like, what about those conversations? Don't they count? So maybe we yeah. should be looking at our welfare system and say, maybe the money's not adequate. Maybe we need to pump it up. But that's the conversation that we need to have. And quite frankly, I think this is something the public has been asking for for a decade. I know we've been wondering. 
Like maybe yeah. there's there's a uh, there should be a light shone on it, and we should be looking and saying, what? hey, we we got to relook at this and where the money's going at because status quo isn't good enough as far as we're concerned. Okay, so you feel that would bottom line it for me here, Howard? Do you believe that the money that's flowing into the system, let's say in the downtown east side right now, where I think everyone, no matter what side you're on in this thing, I think everyone will agree it's getting worse. The situation is the worst that it's ever been. So I, I would the agree. Mo- Okay, so we're we're pouring money into this system that's getting worse. Is your concern is that the money is being mismanaged? It's being not being spent effectively. Well, I think that's what the questions need to be asked on this. This is the first step of it, and you got to remember it's a leaked report. We were still in the midst of our consultative process. We have spoken to a vast number of organizations, community partners. We have spoken with different uh, uh, bureaucrats in government. Um, you know, granted, there were NDAs that were signed, so they weren't able to brief on it. But we have spoken with a vast number of people, over 80 individuals over the last number of uh, months, probably four or five, six months. And so, yeah. you know, there's suggestion that it's a secret report. It hasn't been. But we haven't gotten to the stage where we're releasing it, which right. we're probably intending on doing in, in the early part of next year. It was pushed okay. ahead because the report came out. Okay, that's interesting. Speaking to Deputy Police Chief Howard Chow, let's listen to some of the reaction to the report, which has been divided and controversial here. So here is the mayor, Ken Sim, the new mayor of Vancouver, speaking yesterday about the report. Then we'll get your thoughts. The report that I've seen um, has more questions than answers, um, and I didn't find it super useful. It does talk about transparency, collaboration, and accountability, um, whether or not we needed to spend all that money to come up with that, that message. No, I don't think so. What do you, what do you say to the mayor there? I, I would agree with him in that uh, it's a thick, meaty report, and he's been in the seat two days. He needs to be able to uh, read it, talk to us. Um, and I would encourage not only for for uh, uh, anybody that has questions about it is, is go to our website, listen to the technical briefing that we spent an hour and a half on yesterday uh, where we brought in the PhDs from Help Seekers that talked about this is their methodology and the rigor that went into it. Um, but I think that it's accomplishing what we think needs to be done if we want to move the dial and is that have that conversation because, quite frankly, we're not satisfied uh, that things are going as swimmingly as it, as, uh, as it should be. What do you uh, and say- I, don't think the, I don't think your listeners are either. Yeah. What do you say to the argument that this is uh, basically a, a political document? This is a, des- uh, a document that's designed to put pressure on this new mayor and new council, this new premier is being sworn in next week, to spend more money on the police budget. That That's what this is about, is to sow public... Uh, Lack of confidence in what's going on right now, and the answer must be more law enforcement, so let's spend more money on police. Yeah, I would disagree with that. I'd say that, you know, thank the uh, Premier-designate David Eby for swift attention to this, and we support his plan on this as well. But isn't this what everybody else has been saying? Look at the track record of reports that have gotten out there. Everything from a few months ago about the chief coroner talking about the 10,000 deaths and, and we need more coordination and accountability. What about... What about the reports that came out of the uh, Provincial Police Review talking about the need for accountability, accountability and transparency uh, and coordination and working together? Isn't that what we've been talking about? And all these reports that have been done that are sitting on shelves, like this is, yeah. this is really something that I don't think is really anything new other than the fact that now we can add 
perhaps another conversation involving how much money is being spent there. Well, well, I guess one thing that some people might think is new is a police force that seems to be getting more political in the city. I mean, we had the police officers union uh, make an endorsement for mayor in the recent election. They endorsed Ken Sim and they got the guy in there they wanted. And, you know, I've heard criticism in the last 24 hours that you guys should stay in your lane. You shouldn't be commenting about social services and, and government spending on on mental health. You know, what, what do you say to that, that this the police shouldn't be getting political? These are political decisions you're weighing in on here. No, and I've heard <clears throat> the same thing, Mike, but yeah. I'd say we've got a long track record of this. We've released reports on mental health and the need for more resourcing and funding about 15 years ago and a second report about 11 years ago. We talked about the fent- fentanyl crisis, one of the first to raise the alarm bells, probably about five, six years ago now. We talked about more addiction treatment beds. Uh, because we and the thing is we've got a front row seat to all these social issues and challenges it's also got a front row seat to the gaps and the devastation that are most vulnerable it's also our lane when 70 percent of those in custody are diagnosed with addiction or mental health disorders it's also in our lane when homelessness uh, those that are, are homeless are 19 times more likely to be a victim of violent crime mental health people suffering from mental health are 23 times more likely to be a victim of violent crime those are all in our lane. So yeah. it's about public safety. And so we should be talking on this. And I know it would be, you know, there'd be some that say, hey, you know, we're okay with not hearing this. That's fine. Don't hear it. And if you don't think that anything is to be done, don't do anything about it. But I would, I would probably suggest, and what we're hearing from the public is that something needs to be done. Deputy Chief, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Talking about the report on social services spending in the city of Vancouver, is this money being spent responsibly and effectively? Certainly the situation in the city seems to be getting worse, especially in the downtown east side. You heard from the deputy Vancouver police chief there defending the report. Let's go to your calls. Rick in Vancouver. Hi, Rick. What do you think? I love the police report, even if the numbers are false. I believe that what the report is saying is we need to look at um, where the dollars are going and if the dollars we're putting into it are actually helping the situation. It's yeah. great for all levels of government to keep throwing money at it, thinking it's going to go away, and it's not. So let's yeah. find out where the dollars are going. Yeah, thank you for that. No, I do think that the report raises a lot of important questions and issues that we need some more answers to. And I think at this point, an audit of some of the spending, I think, is, is reasonable. Uh, demand right now and it's interesting to hear the opposition liberals calling for that john in vancouver hey john what do you think hey guys thanks for having me on i just wanted to say a couple of things about the five billion dollar budget you know when they roll up the five billion dollar budget you you pointed out that two billion dollars is coming from oas cpp etc but the other thing is 2.1 billion of that is also going to foundations and charitable donations within the city of Vancouver. So when you strip out that $4.1 billion, it's really not a $5 billion sticker shock number that Chow is trying to say, which is really misleading. So the nine, of the $900 million, that means that 35% of that $900 million is going to the police budget or the $317 million uh, in 2019. So I just think when we're talking about public trust, we're talking about integrity and honesty, this report just, I, I think, is very misleading. And the other thing, you know, Chow says it's a leaked document. I found the document, both their version and Help Seekers document on the VBD website. It's hard to say that it's a leaked document when you get it from the VBD website. Okay, thank you. Hang up and listen. 
Thanks a lot for the call. Well, I mean, you heard the chief say, or the deputy chief say that they actually posted it and, and rushed it out because it had been leaked earlier to the media. Uh, I was a little surprised to hear that. He said this wasn't probably expected to come out until next year, but they decided to brush it out after after uh, a summary of it was leaked. I, I think you summarized the, the criticism of the report that we've heard from a lot of people, but I'm also hearing a lot from a, a lot of people as well that it, it sparks a conversation that needs to be had in the city right now. Brent in Vancouver. Hey, Brent. Hey, Mike. Uh, I just wanted to comment. I've got a 19-year-old son who uh, commutes to SFU every uh, day to uh, go to school, and he takes public transit. And he has stopped taking, which is the most direct route, the R5 bus along Hastings because he feels unsafe. And if a 19-year-old boy is feeling unsafe along that stretch and still nothing is being done, at least this um, release of this... uh, this um, document has helped us start thinking about what has to change. It's ridiculous. Yeah. We're doing the same thing over and over again and getting no results. Yeah, right. Thank you for that. No, the situation is is getting worse. I don't think anyone disputes that. No matter what side you're on in this thing, I think if there's one thing we everyone can agree on is that it's getting worse, and it's the worst it's ever been. Keith and Poco. Hi, Keith. Hey, Mike. Uh, I just wanted to point out that this is not a Vancouver problem. This is a worldwide problem across all of the developed economies where the wealthy have gotten obscenely wealthier and the at-risk and poverty-stricken have gotten worse off way more than they ever have been. And this is is a top-down systemic problem. We're going to be talking about this exact same thing in 10 years' time if we don't actually look at it from that, that perspective. Thank, thank you, Keith. We're going to cover that precise point in some of the coverage we have coming up later in the show, so don't go anywhere. Tony and Burnaby. Tony, you had about 20 seconds here. Hey, quickly. Uh, you know, this is like, this reminds me, I, I love what the police put out. This reminds me, criticizing the police report is like um, when the Vancouver City Council did that five, 25 cent pool, a cup thing while the city's burning down. You can criticize this report all you want, but the reality is, is that guys like Pete Fry who say, well, they say, well, it's like a house is burning. Well, the mailbox isn't burning. The eavesdrop isn't burning. So the police report is not accurate. Come on, pull your head out. Look at the Thank picture. Thank you. All right. It's time to talk traffic law now, including should British Columbia do the same thing as California and legalize jaywalking? How about drop the speed limit to 30 clicks an hour on residential side streets? And how about this one now? Do you think that some stop signs should be replaced by yield signs? especially if people are just rolling through those stop signs anyway. Paul Doroshenko, he's a traffic lawyer with Acumen Law. Hey, Paul. Good morning, Mike. Hey, thanks for coming on. Okay, let's uh, start with the the jaywalking issue. We, talk, we talked about this on the show yesterday, and there was a lot, of, a lot of listener interest on this one. Let's listen to this report here on what's happening in California. This is from CBS News. It's clear that the current law did not hinder pedestrians from jaywalking, even by threatening people with tickets. But starting January 1st, that will change now that Governor Gavin Newsom signed the Freedom to Walk Act. Under a new law, pedestrians will be able to legally cross the street outside of designated intersections without the threat of a citation. Okay, the Freedom to Walk Act, Paul. Just walk walk across the street wherever you want. Why not? What do you think? It's... It's crazy how Americans come up with these funny names for their legislation. Like you're restricted. You can't walk otherwise. The Freedom to Walk Act. 
so, I mean, the the, uh, the issue there basically is, you know, I live in the middle of my street. My neighbor across the street is my friend. Do I have to walk all the way to the corner and then right. cross at the corner to get to his house? And in, in those circumstances, it obviously seems ridiculous to prohibit, uh, to prohibit somebody from just crossing the street there in the center. Um, and I, I think a lot of people would agree with that. It, it's not a, a prohibition in the Motor Vehicle Act. Um, right. It is, uh, you know, these are, these are city bylaws. And the city bylaws, the concern with the city bylaws here is that, you know, I'm not going to be the one who's ticketed crossing the street going to my neighbors. Um, the person who's ticketed is the person who's heavily policed, usually the poor person, sometimes the street, you know, person living on the street. Um, yeah. And it's disproportionately, you know, harming the poor to get this ticket. If I get a $109 ticket or something like that for jaywalking, it's not going to affect me. Uh, but it's going to affect a lot of people who are, you know, more likely to be over-policed in this way. Okay. And whenever governments to... introduce that legislation, they always say, oh, no, it's, you know, we're only going to use it in these certain circumstances. Well, the certain circumstances right. usually end up being oppression. Sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. We t- yeah, we talked about this on the show yesterday, and I, I spoke to Sandy James, who is a, a city planner and wrote a recent column about this. And one of the things that she pointed out is that she thinks it's kind of illogical to think that it's safer to cross at an intersection where you have intersecting traffic coming at you from multiple directions, wouldn't it be safer to cross just in the middle of the street where you only have two directions of traffic to worry about? Here's what she had to say on that point yesterday, and I'll get your thoughts. When they have done studies of mid-block crossings versus crossing an intersection, you are just as safe. In fact, you're a couple of percentage safer crossing on a mid-block crossing versus the four-way. Okay, so it's kind of... I don't know, almost counterintuitive that you'd think that is jaywalking actually safer? Your thoughts? Well, as an adult, it might be because you're going to be larger and seen coming out from between two cars, right? But if you're a child coming out from behind a car, you're not as likely to be seen. And when you get to the intersection, your job as a driver, hopefully, you know, people are doing it. And unfortunately, people are not really focus on their driving duties a lot of the time, but your job at the dry, at, at an intersection is to pay attention to what's going on at the intersection and to know that, you know, this is the, 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 the actual point when you must be alert and aware of pedestrians. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a very good argument to make and, and that she explains it very clearly um, that, you know, there's, you're in the middle of the, the, the block, you're going to see that person that's there. But you're yeah. not necessarily going to see the child who's down, you know, lower than a car height. Yeah, no, it's an interesting argument. And one thing to keep in mind in California is it's still illegal to do to walk into the street and, and in a dangerous fashion. So if you still do that, you're still liable to ticket. It doesn't mean you can just walk willy nilly anywhere in front of in front of traffic. You have to cr- you still well, have to cross safely. Go ahead. We have that we have that section in the Motor Vehicle Act. When a pedestrian is crossing a highway at a point not in the crosswalk, the pedestrian must yield the right of way to a vehicle. Sure. So, you know, it contemplates that you can cross not at a crosswalk. Um, you know, it's uh, it's just that you have to be alert to the vehicles that are, uh, you know, the right. traffic that is there. Okay, where do you stand on the calls by some municipalities to drop the speed limit on residential side streets to 30 kilometers an hour, like the default speed limit right now is 50. Should it be 30 kilometers an hour? Here's Sandy James again on yesterday's show, and I'll get your thoughts. I want to look at the city of Edinburgh. And over three years ago, 
they decided to do just that, that any street that was not an arterial um, moved down to 30 kilometers an hour. And what they found is in those three years, their death rate and serious injury rate went down by 30%. Aldorashenko, your thoughts? Well, it would require the province to change that legislation. It would make us inconsistent with uh, most international law. It would make us inconsistent with the rest of Canada. Uh, It's one thing for the people of Vancouver, where we've got fairly tight side roads, uh, you know, maybe similar to Edinburgh, but I mean, if you've been to Edinburgh, it's it's a windy old ancient city, right? Um, But uh, uh, where we've got these side roads, but like go up to Dawson Creek, or Williams Lake or 100 Mile House and ask the people there whether or not they're supportive of yeah. this. Because, <laughs> you know, they, you've got wider roads, you've got, you've got uh, houses that are set back a long way from the, uh, from the roadway. All the kids are in school in the day, and the, uh, the plumber or the service people who have to drive down the road have to drive at uh, 28 kilometers an hour in order to <laughs> abide by the speed limit. You're going to have trouble persuading people of that. The city could come along and do that you know they could make their own bylaw and 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 do that they'd have to put some signage on the edge of the city uh but i don't really see the hue and cry for it i mean there's these people who want to turn our society into you know everybody lives within 500 meters of their workplace uh the only way you're going to do that is if you have a directed economy or something like that it's just a utopian fantasy cars are going to be around for a long time we're all driving most people are safe we don't have a huge problem with pedestrian yeah. accidents on side streets. We just okay, get, get set to call me on that one when we open the phone lines here in, in a second. Okay, Paul, so here's the other one that we want to hit today, and that is, should some stop signs, obviously not all of them, but should some stop signs reasonably and responsibly be replaced with a yield sign? And I think a lot of people know the situation of, Maybe there's a, st- a stop sign in your neighborhood that nobody stops at. They just do a rolling stop through it. Would it be more responsible to re- replace some of those signs with a, a yield sign? 23 years ago when I moved to B.C. from Edmonton, I couldn't believe that nobody seems to stop at stop signs here. Of course, there's yield <laughs> signs at Edmonton, but nobody stops. So I think sometimes I think I'm the only person. I stop at a stop sign. People beat their horn at me. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, uh, Stop signs are there for a reason, right? It gives you a moment to to gather your thoughts, see who's there to determine whether or not there is a child or somebody on a bike or a vehicle that you can't see for whatever reason. Uh, and it, it is a useful thing. Um, so I'm not necessarily encouraged by this. I just wish people would abide by the, uh, by the stop sign, you know, uh, by a stop sign. Uh, the problem, of course, is that, you know, as I say, people are are uh, just going through stop signs left, right, and center, and it turns all sorts of people into offenders, essentially. Yeah, what is the penalty for rolling through a stop sign, like a rolling stop, not stopping? Yeah, it's not expensive. It's under $200. I think it's $138 on two points or something like that. The problem is that the, uh, uh, it might be three points, I'm not sure off the top of my head. The problem is that the police don't generally enforce it. And I've asked police officers from VPD uh, why they're not enforcing it. And they say that people come to court and they lie and say they stopped. And all I'm thinking is, you know, every police officer these days has a cell phone. There are police officers who take photographs of people, you know, when they're doing cell phone enforcement, you know, catching the people with their phone in their hand, right? Um, there's no reason that the police couldn't make short videos of uh, people rolling through a stop sign. I just look out my window on a four-way stop, and I just watched a guy go firing through the stop sign. So dangerous. There you go. Paul Doroshenko, Acumen Law, is my guest. Full phone board. Anthony in Burnaby. Hi, Anthony. Go ahead. 
Hi. Uh, yeah, I was just uh, going to say, you know, uh, if, you, if, if they want to legalize jaywalking, I'm all for it. But under the condition of uh, if you cross in a crosswalk, 100% pedestrian has the right of way. But if you want to jaywalk, it's all fine and dandy, but you, it's your own risk. If you get smoked by a car, it's your own fault. I just think that should be okay. Paul, thanks for the call. Paul, what do you think of that? Well, generally, we don't assign fault that with a huge metal object hurtling down the road uh, against a person who's walking. I mean, yes, okay, yeah, you might be liable. Uh, but your obligation still as a driver is to stop if there's somebody in front of you. A pedestrian is going to get killed uh, in, you know, if you're not uh, following that rule. Now let's go to Jake on the line in Maple Ridge. Hi, Jake. Go ahead. Jake. Okay, snooze you lose here. We move on to Adam in Burnaby. Hi, Adam. Go ahead. Hello, yeah. I just uh, want to talk about the... Uh speed limits in residential zones i think it uh, a blanket policy would be the wrong way to go about it i think it should be based on how much pedestrian traffic is on the road if you're getting as many people or more people moving on foot than in cars then i feel like yeah a lower speed limit would be the way to go but i feel like in most places it would be kind of an insignificant policy okay good good point paul your thoughts well right now every city every municipality can change the speed limit by sticking up a sign Right. That's all they have to do Uh, in uh, many parts of Vancouver. For example, the speed limit's 30 on the side streets because there's a sign there that regulates it. Let's go to uh, Peter on the line in Burnaby. Hi, Peter. Go ahead. Thanks for this uh, topic. I I think first and foremost, it always has to be safety first. And there's evidence showing that there's a, a safe solution. That's great. But I worry about the nature of society thing. Well, I, it's got to be convenient for me. If I want to cross here, I'll just do it. If I want to, if I don't want to stop, because God forbid I should take an extra moment, I got to be able to go through quickly. Like slow down, be realistic. The one thing that I do believe does need to be looked at is neighborhoods. And we had an instance here in Burnaby where a young child was killed um, from a dump truck that was working. I think we need some sort of regulation when we have that sort of a scenario and construction happening where we slow things down so that it's safe. Okay, okay. I'm sorry to hear about that, that situation there. Um, Paul, do you think that most residential neighborhoods, let's say in, around Metro Vancouver, are typically safe, or do you think there's a lot of speeding going on? Oh, there's a lot of speeding going on, but generally speaking, um, you know, we don't have a huge problem with pedestrians. Uh, there's places where it's much worse than it is in Vancouver. Uh, you know, people don't take their driving obligations seriously. People are, you know, distracted not just by their phones. They're distracted by thinking about other things. Uh, how many people inspect their car before they drive or do a walk around of it? Almost nobody. You know, people just get in their car and they blast down the road and they don't consider that, you know, they have obligations to other people on the road. Same with pedestrians. You know, you see pedestrians just step out on the street without even, you know, considering that there's a, a vehicle coming. Uh, yeah. You know, safety is, a, is an obligation that we all have. Steve in the West End. Hi, Steve. Hi, Mike. I, Hi. I, as you know, I live in the West End and, and uh, the density down there is a lot different than where I am right now, which is in Surrey. And um, so I think having blanket sort of laws or policies is probably not a good thing. It needs to be looked at by location. 
Uh, and, you know, ultimately in the West End, and I guess everywhere, we, we share the road. And certainly there is a lot of accountability for drivers. Um, you can get tickets, etc. But it seems to be a one-way street. Um, I don't see the accountability from pedestrians that just will be absolutely unaware as they walk across the street when when it's turning they'll they'll start walking across the street when it's uh, you know it's literally at the point where it's going red um so no there needs to be rules we live in a society where we have to you know share and comply and each have accountability thanks steve for the call i mean yeah i mean i think people are familiar with seeing pedestrians not paying attention themselves maybe even looking at their phone or they've got headphones on I uh, can't hear a, a car coming. Go ahead, Paul. VPD posted a video the other day showing them stopping and, and uh, telling cyclists that they should stop at a stop sign, but not issuing any tickets. And a lot of people on Twitter were commenting, look at the double standard here. Uh, you know, people on their bikes are, are not ticketed for violating the laws, uh, <laughs> even when you've got a police officer there. And that's a, you know, <laughs> completely fair observation. I get on a bike and, you know, I... I, my attitude changes and I have to make sure that I'm in check and that I'm not arrogant yep. about the fact that I'm on a bike. Um, yep. You know, it's something, sure. again, people have to think about their obligations. Jake and Maple Ridge. Hi, Jake. Go ahead. Hey, fellas. Yeah, you know, I'm a full-time driver. I've driven all over lower mainland and I'm currently in Vancouver twice a day. Um, I personally, seen firsthand, yield signs will do nothing. Um, I can honestly say about 90% of Vancouver drivers don't know what the yield sign is. Speed limit change will do nothing either. Um, I think, uh, glad you brought up the cyclists too. Um, never seen cyclists like I have in Vancouver. They're insane. I can even speak about that on the cops, bus drivers. There is nothing like Vancouver, and I've been all over the city, all over the mainland. It's Vancouver specifically that needs to be addressed. Drivers, pedestrians, everything. But okay. yield signs, terrible idea. Thank you. Okay, J- Jake, thank you for the call. Okay, how does a yield sign work? What are the yield rules, Paul? 30 seconds here. Uh, well, you've got to yield to the other vehicles at the intersection. Usually the yield right. sign is only governing one direction of traffic. It's not like a four-way stop or something like that. You can't have a four-way yield. Uh, the person who's got the yield sign has to yield to all other traffic. Um, Paul, it's uh, unusual in BC. Hey, Paul, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. All right, let's talk about the housing crunch now and how to fix it. David Eby will be sworn in as BC's next premier next week. One of his key promises here, densify housing in single-family neighborhoods. So neighborhoods currently zoned for one detached house per lot. You change that, you allow up to four, four homes On a single lot. Now, I asked EB about this when he was on the show recently, and I said to him, what about some of the obvious problems here? Like parking, for example, in these neighborhoods where you densify, here's what he told me. And we need to respond to this housing crisis proportionally. It's serious for families out there. And I know sometimes it's a pain to look for parking for a little bit longer, but to compare that to the the strain and stress of families and individuals who just can't find a place to live, um, I think we need to just refocus. Okay, now what EB is proposing here is very similar to something they've already done in the state of Oregon, especially in the city of Portland. Okay, let's discuss with my guest now, Michael Anderson. Michael is a senior researcher at the nonprofit Sightline Institute in Portland, Oregon. Michael, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. 
Okay, let's discuss this, what I think is probably the dominant housing model still in most cities, right? The single-family home, a.k.a. the American dream, right? I guess you could call it the Canadian <laughs> dream, too. You want to buy that right. single-family home, and you, you got your own backyard, white, you know, the picket fence, raise your kids. I mean, is that, that is still the dominant housing model here in Vancouver. Was that also the case in, in Portland before some of these changes were brought in? Yeah. And I want to question your premise, of course, that it's the American dream. I would argue that the American dream at least is not necessarily the fence. It's the stability that we can take or leave the picket fence. What we really want is a piece of the picture. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, to that extent, though, yes, it is absolutely the default in most of Portland, 70% of the city, which I think is pretty standard ratio in the west of the continent, yeah. uh, is until recently, it was illegal to build anything except a one-plex or a single-family structure, single-detached structure. Right. And what was the impact of that? Like, I imagine... You know, probably a lot of the problems we're facing here in Vancouver. We got a shortage of housing supply, shortage of affordable housing, skyrocketing real estate prices. Was the same thing happening there? Yeah, similar thing. I would say different. You know, every every city is uh, unhappy in its own way, but essentially the problem is similar. You've got a lot of people chasing not enough homes, and the homes that are being built are pretty expensive, uh, and people think that that is, you know. A problem worth solving, I think. Right. Uh, but everybody disagrees on the way to solve it. Right. So, okay. The, go ahead. Yeah, so I was just going to say, let's, let's skip ahead now to 2019. And tell me about what happened in the... Was this a state reform, statewide reforms that allowed densification in these neighborhoods? Yeah, so there was a conversation, not unlike the one that I think Victoria has been going through yeah. for several years, where there is this proposal on the table to let's say, let's allow these lower cost housing types that allow homes to split up the cost of the land, divvy it up among several households. And that was very controversial. You had some folks saying, no, this is going to completely change the character of our neighborhood. You had some people saying, no, look, think about all the cars and the parking. It's going to be hard to park. You had some people saying that absolutely this is the savior of everything. You had some people saying, but what about the demolitions? Poor people tend to live in older structures. Are they going to be forced to relocate? So there's talking around and around and around about how to make this good for everybody. And then in 2019, the state came in and said, you know what? The status quo is definitely failing. We definitely need more homes at lower prices. We're going to say in these low density zones, you need to at least allow up to four units in most cases. And you figure out the details from there. And once that happened, the city had a fresh conversation, said, okay, we cannot cling to the status quo anymore. That's off the table. We're never going to find the magic formula. So we're just going to decide we're going to piss off a few people. And <laughs> that's going to be the way out. Right. And so you had this uh, statewide uh, reform in 2019. And then, in, and then the city of Portland itself went even further a little later, correct? That's right. So once they were having that honest conversation about how we can't get the status quo, I think that we were able to say, well, okay, so what are our top concerns? And so one of the things they said was, actually, which comes to shove, one thing that's really important to us as a city is getting some regulated affordability built into these new projects. And so they said, yeah, you can do the four, up to the four units that the state requires, and you can also go beyond that. 
we'll allow the buildings to be a little bit larger, and we'll say that if at least half of them meet uh, affordability standard, you can go up to six units. Wow. So the uh, case for doing that was that it would reduce the cost basis for all the nonprofits who were building regulated affordable housing with public money. This wasn't going to pencil on its own without public money, but it was going to make every public dollar go further to allow below market housing in any neighborhood in the city for the first time in 100 years. Speaking to Michael Anderson, Michael is a housing researcher in Portland, Oregon, and we're talking about densification in single-family home neighborhoods. Could the same thing happen here in BC and in Vancouver? They're doing it in, in Portland. So, Michael, you des- you describe some of the the pushback that I'm I'm sure many people are familiar with when you try to bring in these type of densification reforms, and we're hearing the same arguments here in Vancouver. That if you do this, mm-hmm. if you allow, you know, four housing units on a single family lot, you're going to have Carmageddon, you know, there'll be parking problems, the sewage system won't be able to handle it, there's not enough schools, you're going to destroy the, the character of this beautiful neighborhood we have here. How, like, those, those arguments <laughs> right. are happening here, and I, I know, as you said, they happened in Portland too. Like, what happened with those arguments? Like, did these, have these reforms gone forward? despite those complaints? Yeah, and I think what we've found is that the sky does not fall. So just as every city in the world was built, every city in the world that existed before 1920 was built without zoning, right? And we managed to figure out how to address those problems. That's not to say we should go back to the world before 1920. There are lots of problems in that world. But it is to say... These are solvable problems, and it's something that is able to be addressed on a you know case-by-case basis rather than by creating the situation, which we I think we can all agree we have, where there's also a huge pushback. There's a huge, like, it, it's the most important issue in every election, in the, my understanding in uh, Greater Vancouver, is the house, price of housing. Like, that is itself a form of pushback that politicians are responding to and looking for some solution to. Anyway, to get back to what happened in Portland, after this was passed, we've had one full year after it took effect in August 2021 of data now. And uh, what it shows is that there are about two to 300 additional homes built in these low-density homes in a city of 300,000 homes. So it is not a rapid change. What it is is a very slow-moving uh, shift in those low-density zones to be taking on more of the housing than they were, but not like a sudden redevelopment of everything because the buildings are still going to be small enough that like it just doesn't pencil to tear down a perfectly good home. What happens is that when a structure reaches the end of its useful life, either it's going to be replaced by a giant one unit building because that's literally the only thing you're legally allowed to do on the lot or by a multi-unit building with several nice, but less expensive homes. Right. Okay. So would you say there's been, you know, encouraging results so far you're seeing, you're seeing an increase in housing supply? Uh, yeah, I would say it's modestly encouraging. Like, yeah. I would love for it to be generating more than 200 to 300 homes uh, in the city. But I think that that may be accelerate somewhat as people come up with new ways to finance and uh, as we continue to sort of tweak the rules to make sure that it's actually usable for normal people. And how about prices? Like, w- one of the arguments here in Vancouver is, well, you know, the price of real estate is so high now that if you allow developers to go, okay, you can go in and build four units on four houses, four homes on this lot now instead of instead of one, 
that actually raises mm-hmm. the value of that lot. The lot becomes more profitable for a developer, and, and the prices are still going to be astronomical. It's still going to cost you a million bucks, you know, for even for a small right. unit, a small, like, almost like a, you know, a small unit on this property. Has that, like, the, the houses that have come online so far in Portland, are they affordable? Uh, they are coming in. I talked to one builder who's putting them up, and he's like, there are like two firms in town that are really trying to specialize in this. This was this guy's a former, as he describes it, McMansion builder, who realized, wait a minute, my kids are never going to get to live in these homes I'm building. What am I doing here? What if I could actually retool my business, take advantage of this new zoning? Mm-hmm. He's building homes for people. He said he never dreamed that he was going to. So they're like, they're not cheap homes, but he was building million-dollar homes here. That was, uh, uh, you know, the top of the market, and now he's building homes that a school teacher or a restaurant manager, he said, can afford in these same neighborhoods. So, like, this, these aren't, you know, new homes in detached, you know, largely detached areas. They're not being built for the poorest people, but they are being built for people in the middle class. And I think that's the promise, is that people without a ton of money can choose to prioritize location over space if and only if they want to. That's what this does. Okay, well, it's certainly a very interesting development here that we're watching closely in Vancouver as you go through that in Portland. And, Michael, appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on to talk about it today. Yeah, thank you.